This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. At Independence Blue Cross, we take care of the people who take care of you. Everyday heroes like firefighters, teachers, farmers, and healthcare workers. Doctors and hospitals across the region have IBX, and they know what it means to have reliable access to care. So whether you're saving lives or just trying to live a healthier life, count on IBX, the region's number one health insurer for 85 years. Learn more at IBX.com. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or ten months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good afternoon and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. The Centers for Disease Control report that more than 73% of American adults over the age of 20 are overweight, and 40% are considered obese, placing them at risk of diabetes, hypertension, heart disease and stroke, multiple cancers, liver disease, sleep apnea and other breathing problems, as well as orthopedic issues. Today, we welcome a physician of international renown here to discuss the new weight loss medications that are getting a lot of attention in the news and showing some favorable results. Dr. Michael Camilleri is the Atherton and Winifred B. Bean Professor of Medicine, Pharmacology, and Physiology. He's also the past Dean of Development at the Mayo Clinic Alex School of Medicine. He's been a consultant for the Food and Drug Administration on the GI Drugs Advisory Committee. He's held multiple leadership roles in our national GI organizations, including being the president of the American Motility Society, multiple awards, including the Mayo Clinic's Distinguished Investigator Award, and from the American Gastroenterologic Association. He's been called a distinguished mentor and the Clinical Research Awards. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Marianne. I should be able to pronounce gastroenterological. I left off the last syllable. It's a mouthful even for a GI doctor. But So, Michael, your interests have always been about GI motility, among other things. And what's really interesting for you is trying to understand the influences on our appetite, whether it's the motion or what we call the motility of the stomach or the hormones that signal our increase or decrease in appetite, genes that can influence appetite, and what makes someone feel full, whether it's a person of average weight, overweight, or obesity, yes? So I thought it might be good to start our first segment with digestion itself, because it's magical, it's fascinating, and you are a superstar at explaining it. Well, thank you. It, it has always fascinated me, um, you know, what happens when we eat a meal. So 
even as we put food into our mouth and in the upper part of our swallowing uh, tube, the esophagus, we find that the stomach starts to relax, to accommodate. And that's even before food has actually reached the stomach. And by the time food gets to the stomach, within five minutes, the stomach increases its size threefold. And so that's why we can eat, you know, two slices of our favorite food. Maybe it's pizza or a, a lovely place of pasta and also some, some drink with it. And so that's way, that way we don't feel full immediately after starting to eat. So that's the first thing that happens. The stomach accommodates. That's what we call it. And then food moves from the top part of the stomach, which is the main area that expands after the meal, to the lower part of the stomach. Now, the lower part of the stomach is different. It's like the blender in the kitchen. What it does is it breaks down the solid food that we eat to a very small particle size, one or two millimeters, literally, before it starts to empty from the stomach. And so there are many things that are happening while we're eating. We're digesting because of the enzymes that are produced in the stomach. We produce acid to help with that digestion. And we we um, start to have those contractions that break down the food from the stomach so that it can empty through the lower part of the stomach called the pylorus. And then once that happens, the food is going to encounter more digestive enzymes in the upper part of the small intestine. And that helps to produce bile uh, from the gallbladder and juices from the pancreas that help to digest particularly fat and proteins and carbohydrates. So now the food is ready to be absorbed into our body so that we can continue to have enough energy from the food that we've eaten. We can continue to build our protein in our bones, in our muscles, etc. But before that absorption occurs, these nutrients also stimulate the production of uh, several hormones. And the hormones are very important because, one, they help digestion, and two, they also have an impact on our appetite. So what are these hormones, you might ask? So there's a hormone produced in the part of the stomach just beyond part of the intestine just beyond the stomach, and it's called cholecystokinin. And that's the first signal that goes to the brain. It stimulates certain nerves um, in, in, in our body, and it tells our brain, oh, I'm starting to get full. And then there are other hormones that are produced further down in the intestine. One of them is called GLP-1, which stands for glucagon-like peptide 1. And another is called GIP. It used to be called gastric inhibitory polypeptide, and it's now been renamed glucose-dependent insulinotropic peptide. Now, what do these hormones do? First of all, they help us to control our blood sugar after we eat, so we don't get an enormously high blood sugar level. Secondly, they actually slow down the stomach emptying so that the stomach doesn't overwhelm the intestine with nutrients. And third, very importantly, they send a message either through the bloodstream or through nerves to the centers of the brain that are involved in appetite. And they tell the brain, hey, I've eaten enough, I've eaten quite a lot, and I don't need to eat much more. So there are several important functions that our hormones produced after we eat a meal um, play 
in helping us to be comfortable after we eat, but also to send messages of fullness so that we don't continue to eat or gorge ourselves. And it's interesting because um, as GI doctors, we see patients who have abdominal pain after they eat or um, their appetite starts to dwindle. And one of the things we look for is, um, and I always remind my listeners, paralysis means you can't move your limb or whatever body part at all. Paresis or hemiparetic hemiparesis means it's maybe half of your body is weak, but not completely paralyzed. So gastroparesis may be a term people hear, and that's exactly what you described, that if your stomach, I always tell my patients that the GI tract is I-95, which is an East Coast kind of thing, maybe not familiar to those in Minnesota, but um, that I-95 starts at your mouth and the, the opening is at the other end. And that your stomach, as you said so gracefully, is the place where your food gets churned up. It's like the blender. Because you're not going to absorb ham and cheese and bread and a cup of soup. You're going to absorb molecules of carbs, fats, and proteins. And that magic, it, it is fascinating. Your stomach turns into smaller pieces, and then it goes into small intestines. So I tell my patients, think of S and S. Small intestine, think S for sponge. That's where the magic of absorbing those nutrients that are vital to our to living and fluids to stay hydrated. So small intestine absorbs and then the large intestine, which is the colon and rectum, that's the trash compactor. That takes the leftovers, makes nice neat cargo, and if everything cooperates, you empty at a reasonable pace and you're comfortable. So you talk about those hormones and how they all interplay is terrific because you mentioned that these GLP-1 is the drug that, that uh, we're going to talk a little bit more. So, and we'll tell people the names of them that they might recognize out there, the trade names. But there's those two hormones, GLP-1 and GIP, we don't have to bother people with the full names again, but they ask your pancreas to make extra insulin. And am I right? Doesn't insulin, once those levels start to approach the food you've taken in, they... They signal you to slow down too. Your insulin levels help you feel full, yeah? In insulin itself has relatively small effects on um, food intake. Um, if anything, in fact, um, insulin increases your appetite. And, and so this is one of the challenges, for instance, in people who have type 2 diabetes, but they become dependent upon insulin because their diabetes is not uh, controlled well enough. Sometimes we see that those patients, unfortunately, in order to control the blood sugar, they're given insulin and that might actually increase their appetite and result in further weight gain. Make them hungrier. And there's, you know, we've mm -hmm. seen also weight gain. But, but you make a very good point, And that is that this is an incredible machinery. Um, it's a machinery that's almost intended to help um, the organism, whether it's a mammal or a mouse or a human, to survive, to get the best out of the food that uh, we ingest, um, and then to keep um, all the blood sugar levels and the protein levels under control. Um, and as we were mentioning, um, the these two main hormones, GLP-1 and uh, GIP, and further down in the intestine, 
other hormones like peptide YY, also called PYY, um, they all work to slow down the way in which food is emptied from the stomach. And also they work on the appetite centers in the brain. And, and as you started to indicate, you know, the medications that are having such a big impact on the management of type 2 diabetes as well as obesity really target these main hormone receptors, receptors being the proteins in the cells that respond to the hormones that are being produced. And so as we'll talk about in, in the next few minutes, um, those the, the two main mechanisms that are targeted by the medications that are approved by the FDA actually work on GLP-1 and GIP receptors. So you explained that so beautifully. And we're going to spend the next segment talking about what the medications uh, what medications have been approved, how they differ among the choices, and that they imitate or they um, approach the receptors that usually find our natural GLP-1 and GIP and uh, get in there and, and have an influence. Let's take a little break, and when we come back, more with Dr. Michael Camillari from Mayo Clinic. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. At Independence Blue Cross, we take care of the people who take care of you. Everyday heroes like firefighters, teachers, farmers, and healthcare workers. Doctors and hospitals across the region have IBX, and they know what it means to have reliable access to care. So whether you're saving lives or just trying to live a healthier life, count on IBX, the region's number one health insurer for 85 years. Learn more at IBX.com. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. And welcome back to your radio doctor. We're so fortunate to be sharing the company of Dr. Michael Camilleri, who is a professor of medicine and pharmacology and physiology, which all of which we need. I don't think I've ever met someone who's a professor in three areas. God bless you. You, your parents must be very proud of you. Um, but we're talking about the delicate nature and fascinating nature of appetite um, enhancement and suppression and how we're taking advantage of that knowledge to suppress appetite, to control diabetes, to control glucose levels in those with type two diabetes, and now uh, to consider the, these avenues to control weight in people who are obese. And we're gonna talk about um, the characteristics that we consider who's, uh, qualified to have these medications. So let's start with the medications themselves, Michael. What are the approved meds that have had that significant impact? Yes, thank you. So the approved medications, which are really having a significant impact on not only weight loss and type 2 diabetes, 
but but also on some of the complications of obesity and type 2 diabetes particularly some of the cardiovascular complications you know high blood pressure and ischemic heart disease and, and so that's actually been proven with these medications so let me tell you what the medications are there's one medication called liraglutide and the the uh, trade names for that medication are saxenda and victosa Another medication is called semaglutide, and the uh, medication is commonly referred to, and you've probably seen articles or, or television ads and things like that. That's called Ozempic. And the third medication, which uh, was approved for the treatment of obesity at the end of 2023, is the chemical name is terzepatide, and it goes by the commercial name Zepbound. And I know, too, that um, with... So if people are listening, liraglutide was the first, and then semaglutide, and then terzepatide. And again, people might recognize the names Victoza for liraglutide, Ozempic, or Wagovi is another one, uh, semaglutide or Rebelsis. Um, and then Zepbound is the, the chemical term is terzepatide. So what are the differences among those different generic drugs? So um, the, the main difference is how they're administered and how frequently they're administered. So you reminded me, thank you, Marianne, that there's also an oral formulation of semaglutide, and that's the medication called Rebelsus. So liraglutide or Saxenda victosa has to be administered by subcutaneous injection, injection under the skin once a day, Whereas semaglutide, ozempic, and terzepatide, zepbound, are administered by subcutaneous injection once a week. The medication Rebelsus, which is the um, semaglutide taken as a pill, is taken on a daily basis. So th those are the times and the mode of administration that are different. So liraglutide and semaglutide target the receptor of GLP-1, and that, as we mentioned, has effects on controlling blood sugar by inducing insulin production in the pancreas, controlling appetite by affecting the brain centers of appetite, and also slows down the stomach. So people feel full with the foods remaining in the stomach. On the other hand, terzepatide works on two receptors, the same GLP-1 receptor, as well as the GIP receptor, which has the additional um, value of stimulating more of that insulin uh, production by the pancreas, so to control the blood sugar, as well as affecting the appetite centers in the brain. So that's how the different classes um, have different effects on those receptors. And I just want to remind us all that these are mimicking the natural compounds that our body produces when food reaches the small intestine. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting that you mentioned as well, and again, not the same drug isn't uh, the choice of every patient, plus there's... Um, uh, the bioavailability of medications, uh, medications may de de behave differently in different people, but I would imagine some people might like just having an injection once a week instead of every day. Um, is, is either of the injectable forms more efficacious? Does one seem to control appetite and sugar is better than the other? 
So it appears from, you know, an overall analysis of the of what's in the literature that these weekly injections tend to have a greater degree of weight loss compared to the injection of liraglutide, which is given once a day. But if you try to summarize everything that's been published from the clinical trials, it appears that there's a very similar efficacy in terms of weight loss between the semaglutide that's administered weekly and the terzepatide that's administered weekly. So to my mind, mm-hmm. you know, they seem to be to have very similar efficacy overall. So when we were talking about semaglutide, which we also know as Ozempic or Wagovi, and then oral farmers rebelsis, liraglutide, which is Victoza and Sexenda, and then the latest one, as you say, from November of this past year, terzepatide is also once a week, but it's up, it's uh, enticing two receptors, GLP-1 receptors and GIP. Does that combo show a difference? Is that more efficacious because it's going after two targets or is that pretty similar in effect? To- I think that there, there may be some subtle differences, but in general, um, they appear to have quite similar efficacy. Good. So side effects, are there outstanding side effects from any of these medications? Yes. I mean, the most common side effects actually are the ones that refer to the gastrointestinal tract. The most common side effects that we see are nausea and vomiting. And sometimes patients may also have a change in bowel function, which may either be diarrhea or constipation. Quite honestly, we don't know why the constipation and the diarrhea occur, but We do know from research that was done 20 to 30 years ago that if you give the hormones themselves, the GLP-1 or the GIP, and and you study the stomach and how it functions, we found uh, many years ago, for instance, that GLP-1 will slow down the stomach emptying. And GIP used to be called gastric inhibitory polypeptide, GIP, because it reduced stomach acid secretion, and it slowed down the stomach emptying. We don't need to go into the intricate details, but certainly there are um, pharmacological reasons why we can expect nausea Mm -hmm. and vomiting in particular, and of these, the much more common is nausea Mm -hmm. rather than vomiting, um, to occur with these classes of medications. Side effects, one of the possible results of these meds is to slow gastric motility or gastric emptying what are you seeing at the Mayo Clinic in terms of that? Because I would think that from just what I've been learning, any of those side effects, like the nausea or vomiting, are usually mild to moderate and the patients start, they start to fade. But one of the questions out there is gastric emptying. Let's talk about what you've seen at the Mayo Clinic. Yeah. And, you know, what we saw was based on a study which was funded by the National Institutes of Health. And we evaluated 65 patients treated for 16 weeks with liraglutide, which is Saxenda Victosa. Okay. And what we found was that in patients who started off with completely normal gastric emptying, by the time five weeks had passed, we studied their stomach emptying again. And we found that a third of the patients had completely normal stomach emptying. Two-thirds of the patient, on the other hand, had slow stomach emptying. But by 16 weeks, half of those patients, that is a third of the total number of patients, had also gone back to having normal stomach emptying. 
So basically, if you follow these patients for 16 weeks, a third had stomach emptying delay, a third and two thirds had completely normal stomach emptying at 16 weeks. But some of those patients did have slow stomach emptying at five weeks. So as you were mentioning, these side effects may be transient. They may not be persistent for for all patients. Well, because I I guess, again, as GI doctors, we get concerned that if somebody has delayed emptying and uh, if we have a patient that we know has a slow stomach motility, we ask them not to eat solid food for uh, a few days before they have endoscopy. But the good news is you're not seeing an increased risk of aspiration. And people understand that means when a person's lying down, they're going to have endoscopy. They're in the right position for uh, fluid. And if there are any solids to back up or reflux back into the esophagus, we don't want them to, we don't want them to inhale any of that fluid or saliva and, um, and aspirate or choke or get it into their lungs. Tell us if you would, what you're seeing at Mayo with that, with endoscopy. So that's that's a really important point, and and uh, you know a study was done by my colleagues and, and myself here at Mayo Clinic, and we reviewed the medical records of patients who had done an, an endoscopy, an upper endoscopy, which is perhaps the more likely to induce the potential for a lung aspiration. And among the patients, there were four thousand over four thousand procedures performed. And thankfully, there were only two cases of aspiration observed. This is in patients who are on one of these GLP-1 agonist medications like liraglutide or Saxenda, okay? Um, Now, you'd say, well, two out of 4,100 patients is is, uh, important to know. How does it compare with other people who are not taking or not receiving those GLP-1 receptor agonists like liraglutide or semaglutide? And so it, it turns out that we had also done another study that, that here at Mayo Clinic and, and among 60,000 patients, um, the rate of aspiration, the rate of, mm-hmm. of this complication was virtually identical. So for one group, it was 4.8 per 10,000. For the other group, it was 4.6 per 10,000. So we think that with careful management, with the sort of precautions that you mentioned, don't eat solid food for 24 or 48 hours. Don't take any liquids by mouth for 8 to 12 hours before the procedure. We can avoid this risk of aspiration. And I want to bring up one thing. We have about 30 seconds. When I'm hearing that sometimes people are getting access to these medications, uh, not through their doctor, but uh, on the internet, you have to be monitored so close, closely, especially uh, an issue like this, because if you are going to have endoscopy, and your doctor doesn't realize you're on it. Um, the interesting point, we talked about semaglutide versus liraglutide. Um, since liraglutide is daily, you recommend that patients stop it for one week before an endoscopy. But for the other drugs that linger, because you're only getting that once a week, we stop them for at least two weeks, even sometimes three or four weeks before an endoscopy. That would be for the, the once a week semaglutide. Uh, semaglutide or the terzepatide. So people need to hear, you're not going to remember this exactly, but you'll walk away with the concept. You must be under the care of a doctor for these medications. Let's take a little break and hear about this week's Real Champion. And when we come back, more with Dr. Michael Camilleri about weight loss drugs. 
And now for your real champion. I call this segment Pals for Life. 40 years ago, Paula Kielich had the wisdom and compassion to realize the healing effect that pets can have when they share their love as companions with people feeling alone or troubled. She began taking puppies and kittens from animal shelters to visit the elderly in nursing homes and other assisted living facilities, and Pals for Life began its beautiful mission. As the need grew, so did the number of volunteers. Today, about 80 volunteers bring their own pets, dogs, cats, bunnies, guinea pigs. And through the years, the crowd pleasers have also included a duck, a mini pony, a pot-bellied pig, ferrets, Turbo the turtle, and even a bearded dragon. Two special residents at the center include Sprinkles the rabbit and a doggy named Mr. Smarty Pants, an adorable corgi, who frequently participates in pet visits. Along with a variety of animals is an impressive array of programs in which people can benefit from animal companionship. In fact, Pals for Life brings comfort to thousands of grateful people each year. I learned more about the wonderful work of Pals for Life from my friend Karen Barsettini, a very dedicated volunteer, and from the executive director, Peggy Schmidt. Aside from bringing love to the elderly in assisted living facilities, pets can provide therapy to patients in various locations, including hospitals, physical rehabilitation and hospice centers, offering emotional health, social interaction, and encouraging physical activity. They also visit students on college campuses and office staff in corporate settings. As a Pal for Life volunteer, Karen explains that her fellow pet owners develop a special bond with their own dogs or cats because pets can sense when they want to spend more or less time with a particular person they're visiting. Dogs have an innate sense when a person needs an extra focus, and that intuitive awareness also translates to a deeper connection with the pet's owner. All pets are evaluated by program director Kristen Abbott, who was recently featured in a segment on 6ABC, where she explains that we want to make sure that the animals are appropriate for pet therapy, but also that pet therapy is good for the animal. Kristen assesses each animal's abilities to respond to situations they don't usually encounter in their daily lives, like loud noises and reactions to walkers and canes. She also goes to great lengths to plan visits. She tailors the plan to address improving reading or memory care for seniors, how many people will be attending, and she goes to each visit with the volunteers. And important to know, Pals for Life is a pet therapy organization which is accredited by the American Kennel Club. Personally, I also loved hearing about the Reading to Pets program, where students just learning to read can grow in confidence. Often children are afraid to read out loud, but animals don't care. They enjoy the attention and love having someone read to them. With the pandemic, a lot of kids were afraid to return to school. Reading to pets gave them an incentive. When the teacher would say, okay, class, tomorrow the animals will be here. Kids take time to find just the right book. And if they make a mistake while reading, it's okay. The animal wants story time to keep going. The program goes to schools, libraries, and camps. Pals for Life recently partnered with Gwendolyn Mercy Nursing School, where they're teaching students more about holistic approaches to care, including animal therapy. Who knew that the first visit from Pals for Life would also benefit one of the nursing students? 
One student in particular always hesitated to be in the front of the classroom. Visits from our favorite doggy, Mr. Smarty Pants the Corgi, changed her life, and by the end of the school year, that same student lined up to be in the front of the class picture. I'm sure the newfound confidence will also help her to comfort patients with whom she'll share difficult conversations in her years ahead. Karen Barsettini shared another moving story. At a physical rehab center, a kitten was placed on the bed of a man whose stroke left him weak on his left side. After days of not using his left hand, the nurses were startled when they noticed him petting the kitten with one finger. On another day, a Great Dane was brought to a children's hospital. Maybe the elevator or the hospital sounds and smells made him nervous, but as he happily trotted to visit the children, he left a trail of goodwill. That is, the kind of specimens he'd usually leave outside on the grass. Everyone got a good chuckle. When an Australian husky visited a senior center, he happily caught a frisbee each time a patient tossed it. The volunteer said, Sir, I don't want you to wear yourself out too much, but the patient responded, For that moment in time, I was just a guy with a dog enjoying some fun. It gave me a moment of peace when I didn't have to think about my terminal cancer. Friends, you hear these stories and realize that pets can heal. And when people need pets, Pals for Life is there. And the creative staff knows no boundaries. They're now offering pet CPR courses that offer a positive difference. That's courses in CPR and first aid to help your pet. And how about those yappy hours at the office hosted by two Labradoodles and a lizard? We salute you, Executive Director Peggy Schmidt, Program Director Kristen Abbott, Super Volunteer Karen Barsettini, and all the volunteers and their pets. You are real champions who bring sunshine into lives of people who desperately need it. Help support their life-saving mission. Wow, wow, bingo. A great night at the Villanova Inn on Saturday, March 16th. It's a fun and fun raiser. Become a volunteer. Send a few dog bones. Visit their website, palsforlife.org. P-A-L-S for life.org. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. At Independence Blue Cross, we take care of the people who take care of you. Everyday heroes like firefighters, teachers, farmers, and healthcare workers. Doctors and hospitals across the region have IBX, and they know what it means to have reliable access to care. So whether you're saving lives or just trying to live a healthier life, count on IBX, the region's number one health insurer for 85 years. Learn more at IBX.com. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. We're learning so much about the drugs available to help with weight loss in those who are overweight or obese. So maybe that's a good question next for our guest, Dr. Michael Camilleri from Mayo Clinic. Michael, what are the parameters that we use when we want to look for the appropriate patient who uh, could benefit from these drugs? So these medications are approved for 
patients who have a body mass index of greater than 30 kilograms per meter squared, or they have a body mass index which is overweight, that is greater than 27 kilograms per meter squared, but they also already manifest the metabolic or cardiac comorbidities that occur as a consequence of obesity. So those are the main indications um, for these medications. Mm -hmm. And when the drug is stopped, how often, and, and maybe we don't have enough patients to see this yet, how often does the patient regain or typically regain weight? Do they, or have they, during that time, gotten into better habits? Well, we're hoping that they got into better habits, and that's one of the most important things that we're learning. Um, so stopping these medications is very often associated with a regain of weight. Um, the precise numbers may vary in different trials, um, but I would say that um, at least a third of patients are likely to regain weight if they haven't changed their lifestyle, they haven't changed their exercise and diet, in other words, mostly uh, in order to try to keep the weight off. And sometimes I think of uh, mm -hmm. being on this medica these medications as an, a wonderful opportunity to win the battle against uh, yes. weight and to incorporate into our lives the dietary and lifestyle modifications to maintain that weight loss situation. Well said. So is there, uh, as uh, nutrition uh, advisors, and we're looking at people with GI disorders um, and just good general information, we like to tell our patients to consider losing about a pound a week and, and not any more quickly. How? What are you seeing? Do these meds uh, seem to offer that pattern? How do they seem to work? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, if you look at um, the formal trials that have been done with these classes of medications, in general, the degree of weight loss is around one or two pounds per week. And that it can be maintained. For instance, there have been trials of t six months or one year, and that tends to be the rate at which uh, weight loss occurs. Now, it occurs a bit more rapidly in the first four or six months, and then maybe it tapers off over time. But that is generally a, a safe um, rate of, of weight loss. And I guess individuals respond uh, in a wide pattern. But I guess the other important thing to remind patients is once that maximum effect is achieved, they shouldn't uh, despair. You're going to see a plateau because your body says, hey, I'm on a deserted island. There's no food here. I have to hold on to some of my weight and it, it compensates. But it doesn't mean the drug has stopped working. It means that we need to add strategies that we're going to talk about, as you say, exercise and, and healthy choices. Yes. Yes. And, and the other point to make is that, you know, with these medications, we're seeing um, anywhere from 10 to even 25 percent average weight loss. So um, patients will have a, a loss of their body weight, total body weight of either 10 percent, for instance, with liraglutide and up to 20, 25 percent with semaglutide, terzepatide and some of the newer medications that are not yet approved. Yeah. So the point the point I think that's very relevant is that when you have a 5 percent uh, weight loss, you often have a metabolic bonanza, I'm going to call it, because the diabetes gets better controlled. The, the fasting blood sugar is better controlled. The blood pressure can come under better control. So we know that 5% is, is a very good first step. And then 
um, these medications are exceeding, on average, the, that degree of weight loss. And you know, there are some patients, maybe 10 to 20% of patients that may even have up to 35 or 40% wow. body weight loss. Wow. So these medications are an order of magnitude better than anything we've ever had as medications for treating obesity. They do seem really incredible in their effects. Are there patients who should not be on these medications, maybe somebody who's pregnant or other conditions that you'd say, no, you're, they're not, not a good choice for you? So the first thing to mention is that, that um, yes, definitely pregnancy is, uh, is a contraindication. And also the recommendation um, is to discontinue at least two months before a planned pregnancy. So that's the first mm -hmm. point. Secondly, while these medications are approved for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, they are not approved for the treatment of type 1 diabetes, which requires insulin. That's a very different type of diabetes. And then there are um, other contraindications like a prior history of pancreatitis, a family history of thyroid cancer, or a type of multiple endocrine neoplasia where there are multiple tumors affecting endocrine organs like the thyroid, the adrenal, and the pancreas. Um, and so those are the main um, contraindications to using these medications. Mm -hmm. So let's say a patient tries one of these medications and they've been frustrated through the years with trying to make healthier choices. It just, or they're in a food desert, all kinds of reasons why, um, or maybe they have a psychological uh, barrier to, to losing weight in the more traditional ways. What other options are there that would be uh, procedures performed either with an endoscope or surgery? I think that's a great question. Um, so the endoscopic procedures, the, the one that's um, most prevalently done nowadays would be something called a sleeve gastroplasty. Now, gastroplasty means you're changing the shape of the stomach. And the endoscopy can be done in order to um, make the stomach narrower, um, but it also leaves like a little funnel shape because the top part of the stomach cannot be narrowed completely. And so um, think about the stomach in, uh, taking the shape of a funnel and the food accumulates in the top part of the funnel and it slowly trickles through the, the cylindrical part of the funnel. And what happens there is that the stomach emptying is actually a little bit slower. Now, patients feel very full when they do that because the food is just sitting in the top part of the stomach and making them feel full so they don't eat so much. But because the stomach empties slowly, they don't, we don't see the, the bonus of the hormones, the natural hormones that usually have an effect on appetite or affect the, um, the, 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 the centers of appetite in the brain. So they don't have, and this has been shown in, in several studies, they don't have the bonanza that we were talking about earlier, which is the natural GLP-1 and GIP and PYY production, which normally would reduce appetite. So that's the endoscopic procedure. The other procedures mostly are, are surgical nowadays, and um, they would be a sleeve gastrectomy, in which case the stomach is made throughout the stomach from the, the very top to the very bottom, like a sleeve or like a cylinder, if you wish. 
or like a sausage. And the food empties rapidly from the stomach and those hormones are, are, are stimulated and we get the benefit from the hormones to reduce appetite. And the third type of procedure would be a Rouen-Y gastric bypass where um, you have the same restriction in the size of the stomach. So we feel, our patients feel full. And also the hormones are produced, uh, just as we mentioned before, for the sleeve gastrectomy. And then finally, the Rouen-Y gastric bypass results in some malabsorption of food because the bile and the pancreatic juices are trying to catch up with the food, which has already gone further down into the small intestine. And so the food is not as, um, as efficiently absorbed. And that's a good way to uh, lose weight, but we have to be careful that the patient doesn't become deficient in certain vitamins and, and uh, for instance, vitamin D and vitamin K, um, and we want to make sure that the patients don't, don't become deficient, so we might have to supplement those types of, uh, uh, of, of vitamins, vitamin B12, vitamin D particularly. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you make a, so many good points there, and so for our listeners, when we use the magic of, of endoscopy, we're a little partial, you know, us GI doctors, but we're going in with the scope and we're taking a big pouch and making a few pleats in part of the, the uh, actual pouch so it's narrower or smaller and you feel full more quickly. But if we do the surgery, it's not just removing maybe half of the stomach, making the pouch smaller, but we're also reattaching the stomach farther down on I-95. So we're skipping exits one and two and three where we absorb calcium and iron. So that small intestine, S for small, S for sponge, we talked about earlier, each area has its own specific jobs, iron and calcium. Right after the food leaves your stomach, it goes into the duodenum, the area responsible for iron and calcium and so on. And jejunum is the middle portion, absorbs, should take over if your duodenum is not working, but it takes time. And then the distal small bowel, the ileum is B12, folic at, folate, et cetera. But the point is when surgery is performed, it's two steps. We make the stomach smaller and then we attach it. We skip past the duodenum. Like every major city that has a beltway or a bypass, we reattach the stomach farther down in the small bowel so that a third of the roadway is blocked and we're not absorbing. That's That part of the sponge is gone, but we're also losing the opportunity to get pretty darn important elements. So that's not necessarily um, an easy task. So if we can accomplish that smaller pouch and preserve the machinery of life, that might be, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, less Never Never Land, yes? Yeah, I mean, you explained that beautifully, thanks. And um, I do think we, we have to keep in mind that sometimes patients after these types of surgeries need to, uh, to, to be you know, monitored for these deficiencies. Mm-hmm. Um, the cost of these new medications, Michael, where are we with those? And are they covered by insurance and Medicare? So uh, the approximate cost for these medications is around uh, $1,000 to $1,300 a month. Um, different insurances, uh, you know, uh, cover different levels of, of these. So the out, out-of-pocket expenses uh, could be quite variable from one insurance to another. I've also seen recently some uh, suggestion that 
sort of the lifetime expenditure provided by an insurance for these types of medications would be $20,000, which essentially means that patients may get the trial of this medication for about, um, let's say, 18 months at most. And, and that's, you know, the reality of the costs of these medications, unfortunately. And so if the, the money appropriated, say, X number of dollars would allow somebody to... Um, be on these therapies for about 18 months, did you say? Maybe, as you said. That's what I estimate, yeah. yeah. As you said so well earlier, look at it as an opportunity. Just like any new medication that comes along, we don't know if um, eventually we'll look back and say, you should take it for a year and stop. Or you, it, We don't have long-term data yet to say, oh, sure, just take it indefinitely. But the way you phrased it was, look at it this way, an opportunity to get used to eating less, to be satisfied with eating less, and do the other steps on the list, more physical activity, uh, learning to space out. You know, you say it much better than I. No, I mean, you've explained it beautifully. I think this is, I would call this the window of opportunity. It's a, a time when we need to remind ourselves of, of the success that's happening with the uh, help of these medications and then to establish those changes in lifestyle and diet that are going to help us keep the weight off. That's the way I look at this. Beautiful. Let's take a little break. And when we return, our wrap up on this week's Your Radio Doctor. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. At Independence Blue Cross, we take care of the people who take care of you. Everyday heroes like firefighters, teachers, farmers, and healthcare workers. Doctors and hospitals across the region have IBX, and they know what it means to have reliable access to care. So whether you're saving lives or just trying to live a healthier life, count on IBX, the region's number one health insurer for 85 years. Learn more at IBX.com. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. And welcome back to our final segment of Your Radio Doctor. We call this segment Your Weekly Prescription. Many, many thanks to Dr. Michael Camilleri from the Mayo Clinic. Michael, you have spent well over 20 years uh, with your fascination and doing research on gastric motility and the effect of appetite on intake as well as hormones. That's your baby, the hormones that increase and decrease our appetite. Yes? Yeah, absolutely. And um, we're really interested in uh, you know this interaction between the hormones and the muscle activities of the stomach and the intestine and the way in which they impact the appetite. Because we think this is, you know, one of the factors that that's quite relevant to maintaining weight. And, and as we've seen with these medications with, with uh, inducing weight loss. And it's so neat because aside from I mean, we know that weight loss is a big issue. Weight, we think that carrying extra weight leads to inflammation that causes other disease conditions. And, and if we can control weight, it's going to take away uh, at least some of the risks 
for diabetes and cardiovascular and stroke and all the things we mentioned earlier. Um, in your lifetime, did you ever think that we would stumble on? Well, maybe you did because you've been at it for so long. Did you ever think that would stumble into medications like these? Quite honestly, my answer is no. I never thought this was going to have the impact that these classes of medications are having because we've been accustomed to other medications that have been available, but the degree to which they induced weight loss was, you know, around five or 8%. Now we're seeing medications that um, routinely uh, are able to achieve higher levels of weight loss. And, and we've also seen from studies that not only do they induce the weight loss and the improved control of the diabetes, but they also have impact on the cardiovascular, the high blood pressure, the comorbidities, the um, abnormal glycemic control, in other words, the diabetes. And so we think that that's going to have a very good impact on the whole body of uh, patients who are overweight or obese. That's the most um, staggering thing. And not to forget the increased risk of multiple cancers that that um, we're not sure we understand why, but uh, does fat, well, I guess extra uh, weight in women is where estrogen forms postmenopause and all those fascinating things that we're learning. And finally, I love that you say that if these are costly drugs, plus they haven't been around for a long time, so we don't really have the data, but if a person has the opportunity to be on one of these medications for 12 months, even 18 months, hopefully that's enough time to start from scratch, clean, clean palette, start a new painting with a better, healthier lifestyle and dietary decisions, yes? Absolutely. I, I look at this as the window of opportunity to um, establish a more healthy lifestyle, more healthy diets. And I, I believe that the fact that patients are seeing the magnitude, the, the amount of weight loss that I think I've observed really reinforces and encourages people to take on those dietary and lifestyle modifications that are going to be very important for them to continue to maintain that weight loss um, after they've stopped the medication. And people feel better and they look better and they have more confidence and they're able to move more freely. It's just wonderful. And you are one of the giants uh, behind this movement. And I can't thank you enough because to, to share your time, but especially your wisdom has been, this has been a magnificent conversation. I thank you. And I'm going to have to come out to Mayo Clinic someday for lunch. We'll have leafy green vegetables for lunch. <laughs> Very good. Well, it's been wonderful. I'll treat. Okay. Uh, I'll take you up on that. And it's been wonderful to participate in this with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor every Saturday at 5 p.m. here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Listen to any of the shows in our extensive library on odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. Visit our website, yourradiodoctor.net, or listen wherever you get your podcasts. A special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and for support from Recovery Centers of America. And now a word from helio.com the medical media company and information platform that offers the latest in healthcare news and information. Today, our discussion was about a category of weight loss drugs 
called GLP-1 receptor agonists. We talked about the generic drug names semaglutide, liraglutide, and terzepatide. Some are injected, one is oral, some are once a day, some are once a week. You're probably more familiar with the trade names Ozempic, Wagovi, Rebelsis, Victoza, Saxenda, and Zepbound. Visit Helio.com to learn more. A helpful article from this past November called Pharmacology Consult, GLP-1 Receptor Agonists for Weight Loss Management. Read more on Helio.com. Now, my friends, get ready for March. We'll be lighting Philly with the Blue Lights Campaign for Colorectal Cancer Awareness and, drum roll please, opening season five of Your Radio Doctor with some great new plans. So please, Send an email and tell us what topics you'd like us to cover. Send a message to info at yourradiodoctor.net. And please continue to pray for peace in our world, our country, our families, and each of our own hearts. This is Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, and safe week with the ones you love. And always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre-recorded. At Independence Blue Cross, we take care of the people who take care of you. Everyday heroes like firefighters, teachers, farmers, and healthcare workers. Doctors and hospitals across the region have IBX, and they know what it means to have reliable access to care. So whether you're saving lives or just trying to live a healthier life, count on IBX, the region's number one health insurer for 85 years. Learn more at IBX.com.